Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. So good to be back and I don't really know where to start. The last time we recorded was my first day. Yes, it was your freelancing. first day freelancing. That's um, so weird, that's so weird. We recorded weird. our International Women's Day episode with Carol Easton mm-hmm. for the Young Women's Trust, who we are running a half marathon for. Yeah, I, so I've been moving into my flat in Edinburgh, which is very exciting. Do you feel really adult? So adult. Because I feel like you're way too adult for me. Yeah. Right now. I have mm. dived so deep mm. into adulthood and I really don't know how to swim. Literally or metaphorically. We're going to start first with this um, chocolate that I have right in front of me. So, Shah, um, what is this chocolate and can we recommend it to everyone? It's uh, another recommendation of co-op only brand. So, the Hilo have co-op, co-op salt and vinegar crisps. That's their their recommended product of choice. We're going for the, is it chocolate orange? What's the full? Mm. Dark chocolate with orange. And it says irresistible on the cover and it's true. Yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. Mm. I hope they send us lots of bars now. <laughs> one, can, one can only <laughs> what, hope. What have you been reading and listening to while we've been away? Okay, what so... What are the highlights of the list? Because my list is really long. Yeah, my list is really long. Okay, so let's just... Let, I'll just fragment this. Okay, books. My Words Exactly by Lily Allen. Echo Heart, that. Absolutely brilliant. Heartburn by Nora Ephron. Read by Meryl Streep. Yeah, because I listened to the Audible. Um... Educate. I love Meryl Streep's voice. Yes, it's really good. It's so good. That's how I imagine Nora Ephron now. Um, Educated by Tara Westover. Which I cannot wait to read. It was recommended to me by my mother. She told me not to Google anything, so I haven't. I've just started the book and I'm obsessed with it. But if you want to have, if you don't want to go down that route and you don't trust this recommendation, which you should, <laughs> but if you don't and you want a taster, go and listen to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. She interviews Tara Westover and it is a fascinating interview, as all of those mm. episodes are. That's just, on my... just, just some context, Tara Westover um, is writing about her experience being raised Mormon um, in America. And educating in herself. I- in Idaho. Completely. Um, she was not allowed to go to school. And you start the book uh, in that way. I don't even think the American government knew she existed until she was nine years old or 11 years old. So her parents didn't even register her birth. So how do you even have any form of identity if you've not been educated and the government don't even know you exist? I mean, Mm. it's an incredible story. Mm. Um, And I'm really enjoying it. So I've been loving those uh, books at the moment. Um, I've also been enjoying David Tennant does a podcast. So good. Which is really good. My favourite episode has probably been John Hamm. Okay. Um, Who is John Hamm? John Hamm is from Mad Men. Okay. But he talks about... I have this really bad habit and I should really stop doing this. If I see a podcast and I don't necessarily recognise or know who the person is, I quite often don't listen to it. Which is terrible because they're often the best episodes. I know, it's so funny. And George I remember Ezra... you. I remember you so clearly. There was one very well-known podcast and you looked at the thing and you were like, do you recognise any of these? Nah. And you were like, ah. <laughs> And you were like so disinterested. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, but George Ezra always says this on his great podcast. Mm. And he says... You know, if you've never heard of them, just give it a listen because sometimes those are the best ones. And he's so right. Oh, they totally are. They totally are. Mm. Um, so yes, I'm enjoying David Tendall's podcast, and um, I also have kind of had a, a weird week in that I dove deep into 
the Michael Jackson documentary. Is it dove or dived? <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god. I hope it's dove. No, it's dived. It's dived. I dived deep. I dove deep. It's dove. Can you tweet us and tell us what you're listening? I don't know. <laughs> That's awful, isn't it? I don't know. Carry on. Okay. Sorry. Um... So the Michael Jackson documentary on Channel 4 and the Madeleine McCann series on Netflix, which I've seen all eight episodes of. Um, Did you watch them all in one go? Within like three days. Yeah. Wow. It, you get hooked pretty quickly. Um, but the Michael Jackson documentary... Uh, which I recommended you watch. Did you did you want to watch it before? No, I, I told did not you. want to watch Why it. Why not? Because I when I make the time to watch something <laughs> It's rare, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but quite often I just want to escape. Charlotte doesn't get lost on YouTube like all us normal folk. <laughs> There's no oh I just got lost on Netflix and watched things. It's like no, Charlotte will schedule time to watch something. <laughs> <laughs> I do sometimes get a bit lost when I'm researching for this podcast and I really enjoy it. <laughs> like Lady that's, Gaga, that's I went so in awesome and I was just watched loads of interviews. I was like, oh, this is so good. Um, no, what was I going to say? I, if I'm going to watch something, I quite often like it to be quite escapist mm -hmm. and quite positive, mm -hmm. often like chick flicky, mm -hmm. romantic. And it means that I end up not watching documentaries that I've always meant to watch, you know, or like Oscar-nominated films or anything that's... That's interesting. I think yeah. we should do more of that. I, think I know, should I should. More of things it's that me make it's meant think. that I, I have not seen so many films that everybody else has seen. I actually was of... having a conversation with Hugo the other day about The Favourite and he's saying how much he, he was saying how much he loved it. And um, I said, I went to see it with Charlotte and she... I was like, it's not really her kind of film. And he said, why? And I said for the, that exact reason yeah. is it's just there's so there's just too much mm. um, but it's the kind of film that I would only see at the cinema so I think yeah. that's why I also like going to the cinema because I often see films that I wouldn't necessarily choose if I was sitting down and watching a film in mm. my slippers mm. so two which I've seen recently which I probably would choose to watch actually and would watch again Mary Queen of Scots I thought was really good mm. and Green Book absolutely phenomenal so tell me, what did you think about the Michael Jackson documentary? Because I, I don't think I'm the same. It's amazing. This sounds so dramatic. I don't think I'm the same person in how I view abuse as I was. I don't feel like the same person. Full stop. Having okay, watched good. that, I'm so glad you said that because I also feel the same. I don't feel the same <clears throat> person before. I, yeah. It Why? Affects. Yeah. It's just because it shows abuse. It layers up the story mm. very gradually and you get to know these people slowly and surely and every crevice of their of their experience there's they don't hold anything back because it shows you how much they love their abuser and don't even recognize it as abuse i think even when everything comes out for me before i watched that documentary i didn't actually realize what child abuse was oh what definitely not sexual abuse was I or any kind of abuse, full stop? I think what I thought it was before, you know, I imagined someone who was terrified of their abuser, someone who was physically harmed, uh, uh, visibly, yeah. visibly physically like bruised harmed. Bruised and cut. Bruised and cut. Yeah. Um, I imagined some kind of, for some reason, in my mind, I had a sort of... Uh, 
ma- older man in a wife beater with a with a few beers who has got very drunk and violent. Yeah. I didn't think of a someone who was gentle, who was trying to show love, quote unquote, um, telling these boys that that's how he showed love, that he was in love with them, that they were the most important thing to him. That And someone who was so thoughtful in the way that they manipulated people. You I know what, what even freaked me out is sometimes I don't even know if he was even thoughtful. It was just him thinking the only way I can have love and receive love is through yeah. these children. But it seems so calculated. Yeah, and I think does. what was really interesting is family as well. Yeah. The I families. think what was really interesting is that you had so you have two accounts. One mm-hmm. of them is from a boy called James or Jimmy mm-hmm. and the other from a boy or man called Wade. Mm-hmm. And they had never met each other until Wade came out with his story and then Jimmy got in touch with him because he mm-hmm. felt there's somebody who actually understands this and now I can mm-hmm. talk about my experience. And they bring in interviews with the family members and friends and wives and mothers and fathers and it's a really, really well-produced Wade's father took his own life. I know. Um, and, and again, going back to what you said about the manipulate, you know, the calculating aspect of it, they you know, were made separate from their families. I mean, he he, yeah. he brought them so close to him that they didn't actually want yeah. to be close to their families anymore. Yeah. And and Wade's father, you know, took his own life. And that's what his, Wade's sister's immediate reaction when she found out that her brother had been abused, having mm. denied it for so many years, was one of her thoughts was, I'm so scared for my mother because she's going to take her own life as well because she's going to feel so much blame Mm. for what happened to her son. Mm. And you can't shun the responsibility completely, but I also think that... I I think it's very difficult for us to go back to the time, early 1990s, when Mm. this was happening. Less media, less news, less horrible stories of the child abuse that goes on and I think that as a parent you never want to imagine the worst and I think it's not that she can be excused for leaving her child with you know a man I, I just, in I just the room but do you, do you know yeah. what I'm trying to get at it's like we we have think, a yeah. much higher awareness of right. what can happen and I mean, therefore even, I think we'll even if you look at something as simple as like safeguarding and things you know when we were at school we were allowed to do so many things that we you can't do in schools now yeah and even more so in the early 90s like people just didn't think as much that these things were possible. Yeah. However, having said that, I still think that these mums, you know, they had very talented sons. One of the reasons that Michael was able to find them is through these competitions of dancing competitions and, you know, they, they were cast in uh, mm. adverts that he was in. Um, you know, stage mum type tendencies of, this is the most famous man in the world. This is the king of pop. He is interested in my son and my family, mm. totally starstruck. Mm-hmm. However, and they've grown up with him in their living rooms. Right, there so they were groomed the before they even, they said that they were groomed before they even met him. Yes. Because when you meet a celebrity like that, all you're thinking about is the celebrity. Yeah, and you feel like you know them. However, I know a few seven-year-olds who are very close to me. Would I ever let them sleep in bed with a, f- a man in their mid-40s? No. Who's not their you know, father or mother? Absolutely not. No. And that's when I just think, oh my, like, how yeah. did this happen? But also, I think, well, there are so many aspects of this just really blow your mind. How did he get away with two trials of... I know. And 
several allegations from several different people coming <laughs> up. And then I feel so horrible for those people, those boys who came forward and who weren't believed. I know. But from day one, you know, he told Wade and Jimmy, who, who were speaking in this documentary, you know, if you tell anyone about this, we both go to jail. Both of our lives are in jail. I also think that they were thinking about Michael more than they were themselves. Totally. I think they were more scared for him going to jail than they were for yeah. themselves and, going to and jail. And another reason for that is because he made himself so vulnerable in front yeah. of them and was cr- would cry and in front were, of them. And they were both, I mean, they were in yeah. love with each other. And totally. they talk about the jealousy of the other young boys that he yeah. ended up bringing into his life. Yeah, because they grew up eventually. Mm-hmm. And that was almost heart. You always. I know. Oh, it's such a good documentary. You're always a heartbreak. Because Wade talks about when he turned 14 and, and grew, you know, five inches and. Yeah. Um, or five feet, sorry. Yeah. And, you know, suddenly his and voice. And the blood on his underwear. Yeah. He, and, well, his voice got lower and it was like, well, Michael brought in younger boys after that. Because yeah. that's not what he was. Yeah. And you're just like, on the one hand, you're like, that is, that is absolutely awful and distorted. But also to Wade, that felt like a betrayal and was so exactly. jealous of it. But I think this is what was so interesting is that you had these two accounts from different men who hadn't met each other until fairly recently and they mm. had very similar accounts of mm-hmm. how it was played and Michael Jackson was gradual in the way that he got to know them he kept in touch he spent a lot of time on the phone he made himself vulnerable exactly as you mm-hmm. say and he he kind of gave them an insight into this sexual world which felt secret and special for those two together. Mm. I don't even think sexual was really part of it. It was more like love and, and friendship. friendship yeah. And companionship. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I also think, I think it was fascinating that both men only fully realised how horrendous what they had been through was until when they had their own children. And, they, and, they saw and then children they separate the it age. from yeah. themselves and they can see it in other people. And we mm. were talking about this, how when you see something, an abuse happening on people with people that you love or imagine something awful happening, then mm. you realise, that happened to me. Oh mm. my God. Mm. And you're often not as hard, you're not hard on yourself. I mean, you're sorry, you're harder on yourself than you are to your children or to your loved ones. Mm-hmm. So when you see a loved one, have that sort of thing mm. happening to a loved one, you think... I'm so angry I can't even mm. breathe mm. thinking about this. But to me, I don't really have mm-hmm. any feelings mm-hmm. towards it. And that, and they both said that. They When they both became yes. fathers, that's when they But they thought... felt like a mirror image of each other almost. Yeah. It was really interesting in the way yeah. that they did that. And I would encourage anyone to look at the interviews that they do together because they are very powerful, um, including one um, on the Oprah Winfrey Super Soul Conversation uh, podcast series. It's called After Neverland. And they both talk together... Um, on that about about this oh, I'm so story. glad that they've spoken out and I hope that this creates another ripple as the Me Too movement did mm-hmm. with women mm-hmm. the first figure that we are going to be talking about is the singer and songwriter and actress Lady Gaga who has become the first person to win an Oscar Grammy, BAFTA and Golden Globe all in the same year She grew up in New York. She was born in 1986, so she's currently 33. And something I found out that I didn't know before was that her her name that she was born with, other than her stage name, was Stephanie, or is Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanotta, and born to Italian-American parents. Have you found out any fun facts about Lady Gaga? Well, I mean, I... You already knew so many things about I her. Do. I feel like you're just obsessed with her. I am. I, I, you know, Lady Gaga for me was such 
uh, an integral part of my tweenhood and teenhood. <laughs> tweenhood. Tweenhood. Because poker face and just dance, I think they came out when I was in year eight. Yes, and I remember did. the days of YouTube. School discos. YouTube converter. I remember YouTube converting oh, yes. it and then putting it into my iTunes and then downloading from Google Images the image of the album and like, oh, that's so bad. I mean, I'm admitting that I legally listened to her music. Oh, we but, all did. But I think I got that from you. But I, I just, I loved her. I just loved everything that she was about. I, lo- I, I got the female power that she was trying to exude. Mm. Although, I feel like back in those days, she was still very much a character. I yes. don't think we've seen her authentic self until actually quite recently. I think that's a representation of society, actually, in the last 10 years. because That we allow people to be themselves more. Definitely. Because if you think about when she first exploded on the scene, it was 2008, 2009, there was still so much innuendo facade um people kind of posing as this thing and this thing and actually being another and you saw her in so many interviews with sunglasses on mm-hmm. remember she had the meat dress she was yes, in, in an egg um she just did some really weird and bizarre things mm. but i think what she was trying to do to actually say look as a generation, we have something to say. We have something. We have. We need. To and make this a is difference. my experience as a woman. I think that yeah. was a lot of what she was about. And then in the last two or three years, it's like she's almost become not a different person, but well, I just, think she's she become more herself. Like, mm. Because that's what I loved about the film a *Star Is Born*. Because until I'd seen that film, I didn't actually feel that I knew what Lady Gaga actually looked like. Mm. And who she was without her persona and her facade. I think that I think I just think that her transformation has shown a lot about what conversation about feminism, especially, has been like over the last ten years. Mm. Because actually now she that we've broken down the barriers. Yeah, yet. definitely. Mm. And I just want to go through some of her songs. So bad romance is the one that I associate most with you. Why? I don't know, I just remember you absolutely loving that I song. I did, I did love it. I loved it, I love Bad Romance. I think that whenever we were going to put on music, you just always chose that <laughs> I did. Um, also, The Edge of Glory was written uh, about her grandfather passing away um, and him saying to her just before he died that he felt like he was on the edge of glory because he had you know, accomplished everything that he wanted in his life. He was so happy and he mm. had this amazing partnership and her grandmother, um, and that came out just as my grandmother uh, passed away when I was about 15. And so I really, really, uh, f- mm. like, I just resonated with that song so much. Yeah. Um, I think they cover that in the Netflix documentary, don't they? Mm-hmm. Because there's a re- that's one of my oh, favorite- you watched it? Yeah, of course. Good. Um, yeah, five that's foot two. one of my- favourite scenes when she goes to see her grandmother Mm. and doesn't she say something like did I get it because Mm. she's trying to capture the spirit of somebody that you know she really loved Mm. I think she did really really good I think she did um she also had a terrible accident uh where she injured her hips I think they well she talks about that in that documentary about you know how she's been trying to recover from that and it's Mm. been taken a long time her Super Bowl performance was amazing yeah. That documentary kind of followed the lead up to that. Yeah. Uh, as this peak. Yeah. Because it is a peak for a lot of It is, and artists. then she's just gone and done another massive peak this I year. Know. I mean, win an Oscar. Or yeah. Win an Oscar. Um, what did you think of her performances? 
in the Super Bowl. At the Grammys and the Oscars. I loved that everyone was just obsessed with her and Bradley Cooper. I love their friendship so much. And she said in an interview in Jimmy Kimmel afterwards, she was like, that's what we wanted you to believe. Like, that was all directed and choreographed extremely carefully so Mm. that you bought into the narrative. Mm. And no, we don't love each other in that way romantically. I mean, Although she has a tattoo of La Vie en Rose. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories with so- her good tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be loving delving into those. She does have some pretty you know, she made tattoos. She made some kind of musical mistake where she had, she got um, Gaga, as in like G-A-G-A, mm. as a tattoo, and she only had four lines instead of five. And she put it on Instagram and everyone was immediately Oh, in a stave, in a musical stave. Yes, exactly. Yes. And she uh, then admitted that she'd been drunk when she got the tattoo. <laughs> Well, I feel like, again, uh, diving a bit deep here, but she was probably one of the first celebrities or like female figures that I looked up to that would talk about alcohol, sexual assault, uh, smoking weed. After Christine Blasey Ford was amazing. Yeah, um, and she was like, "Yeah, I got drunk with this," or and like. No one was really saying that when... Mm. But people kind of thought, oh, Gaga is this kind of, like, crazy rebel figure, like, obviously... But she's like, actually, no, I mean, I grew up in New York. I went to a Catholic school. She went to Sacred Heart School in New York. And so she was definitely one of the first voices of the movement that we have now. Um, She also has always been a huge LGBTQ... Uh, activist yeah um, her... and has spoken to Prince Har- uh, William about mental health mm-hmm. that is one of my favourite videos I know it's so good because he's like on Skype like Hello. I know I just love the <laughs> idea of them on Skype together <laughs> it's really great um, but no but she I mean that, that was back in 2011 when talking about mental health wasn't cool she's always been ahead of her curve Exactly. And she created the Born This Way Foundation. Again, Born This Way, one of my favourite songs. If you went on Desert Island Discs, would one of your songs be from Lady Gaga? Definitely. Which, I don't, which I don't one know. Would it be? I don't know. I don't know. You have to choose. I do love Alejandro. I do love Judas. Ah. Alejandro is about all of her past relationships. I don't know. I think that Just Dance has a certain resonance with me because... Um, I first listened to it at an age where I think that I felt probably at the edge of so much possibility and Mm. my life was kind of ahead of me. Yeah. Um, And I think the music at that time, in 2008, there was some quite... I don't know, there was just a lot of... 2008 and 2009 had some brilliant music. It did, it did. Black Eyed Peas brought out some bangers. Right, well, that was the year of um, I Got a Feeling. I don't think there's anyone quite like her. Mm. Although... What do you, f- did you come across the uh, comparison to Madonna in your research? And the- yeah, I did a little bit, but I didn't, I just think it's something that happens too often where you set two women against each other who mm-hmm. never really asked for that. Because when you and think about male this- uh, musicians, when do you ever feel like Adam Levine is compared to this person or Radiohead is compared to here or like, oh, they're like, oh, this sound is not this sound. Whereas as soon as Lady Gaga appeared, it was like, oh, you're just copying Madonna. Yeah. 
I think it's much more interesting to look at her in comparison to the people that she was inspired by, like Queen, that's where mm. Gaga comes from, mm. from Radio Gaga. Radio Gaga, yeah. And David Bowie and the costumes and... Mm. Elton John. Yeah, I think mm. those icons... She's um, much... Elton John's son's godmother, eldest son's godmother. Oh, really? Yeah. I think those comparisons are much more interesting than her and Madonna. Definitely. Um... I think, and obviously there are similarities between her and Madonna in the way that they are breaking the silence on lots of different subjects mm. and they're theatrical and kind of sexy in that way. But I just don't, I didn't like the way that they became competitors. It's just so unnecessary. You don't do that with mm. other musicians. Why should you do that with... I think, it's just, I think, I think it's, that's such a classic female thing. It is. And the other classic female thing that I wanted to point out is that she has been highlighted as the first woman to win an Oscar, Grammy, BAFTA and Golden Globe. But actually, she's the first person. Mm. And loads of headlines would say woman. And I looked a bit deeper into this. The only other person in history to do this, and it was across their lifetime rather than in one year, was Audrey Hepburn. So as far as I can tell, there isn't a male who's done this. So it makes me think, why are you not saying it's the first person? Because it is the first person. If it had been a man who'd done this, I feel like they would have put the first person. But because yeah. it's a woman, they highlight that it's the woman. Mm. So you, if it's not the, the default in mm. what society views as the default, as like heterosexual, male, white, they always highlight it. And it's mm. really irritating. I'm just, I just want it to get away from that. The... Second figure for this week's episode is that 7% of children in the UK are privately educated. And this was inspired by Dolly Alderton's recent column in the Sunday Times Style magazine, as she felt that it was incredibly important to talk about the privilege of going to a private school and the certain benefits that it brings you. Um, although we're going to talk about that later because there, she kind of was met with, I think, the most backlash that she's ever been met, met with in her entire career. But what she does highlight is that 42% of Oxbridge students are from private school, 70% of judges are from private, private schools, 60% of doctors are privately educated in the UK, and that there are 2,600 private schools in the United Kingdom. Now... Shah, what was it about this figure that interested you so much that you would bring it to this podcast? I think it's something that often makes me feel quite uncomfortable to talk about because when you're in it, I don't think you realise how privileged you are. In a private school. In a private school. Mm. When you get out, you realise how fortunate you are. But I think you can also end up feeling quite guilty about that as well. Even though you may have really enjoyed it. And often it's your parents' decision, not your decision. I think it's just a very... It's quite a complicated thing to talk about. It's mm. an integral part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And it's often very individual as well. But I think that, so I also, just to give some context, I, I've had experience of different schools. So 
I went to a private nursery school, private primary school, and then at year four, when I was about eight, um, my grandfather, who had been funding my, has and has funded my entire education, passed away, and he, we had to move, leave the private school, because he could no longer do that. So I then ended up spending a few years at state school, which I really enjoyed, but it was a very different experience. Had one year at a secondary state school, and then because my grandpa had left a trust, education trust, I was then able to go back to private school. And I went back to the same one. And my, the way that I talk has ha had a huge impact on that because when I was at the private school, I felt a lot more comfortable with my English accent in a Scottish school. Everyone asks me about that, by the way. Yeah, I know. Any of my friends with me, they're like, why, is she, why does she have an English accent? She's from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> because I sound like my parents and they were both, both <laughs> privately educated, both from England. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think it it's a huge part of my growing up and my different experience. And I remember mm. distinctly the difference in class sizes and the difference in what was being covered in the curriculum. So I can remember going from year four to year five and feeling like I had gone back a year in school in terms of what we were covering. But I also think what it's given me is uh, I really, really, really appreciated my private education so much. And I threw myself into everything into that school that I hadn't had at the previous school. And it's also not to say that the state schools weren't good because they were brilliant, but there was a marked difference between the mm. two. Um, so, and then when I went to university, I felt that I was able to fit in very easily because at Durham, almost everybody mm. <laughs> I know is mm. privately educated. And there were very few people who I knew that weren't. That was the reality of it. And I could see that maybe they felt a bit uncomfortable because they weren't in that, that bubble. And Durham felt like an extension of a private school where everybody kind of knew everybody. And yeah, that's, that's my experience of it. What assumptions do you think people make about you from the way that you talk and from your education? Assumptions. Um not really had to work hard or do very much to be in the position that I'm in. Um, a very like derogatory assumption that I'm very right wing. Mm -hmm. um, assumption that I don't really care about anything other than other people who were also in that bubble school bubble mm -hmm. i'm just an awful person <laughs> i think that's been the worst assumption honestly i think there yeah. are so many people that think i'm just would you abolish private schools that's a really good question okay i'm gonna be really debatery here and say <laughs> nice word if we were to abolish private schools they would happen underground in the black market there's always going to be a um a need for individuals who have the means, who have the wealth, to try and access the best, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's luxury clothing, whether it's, I don't know, drugs. <laughs> like, there's, there's always going to be people that want it. My mother always used to talk about how in America, you know, everyone went to their local high school and private schools were actually much, much, much rarer and often they were associated with religious. So there was like some Jewish private schools or like Catholic private schools where there were families that kind of wanted that more kind of 
niche education mm. but actually all of the school all the sort of state schools or the public schools were actually of very good quality mm-hmm. um and i think that's what we should focus on in the uk um is actually making it so that we don't need to have this inequality mm. because it's such a massive massive inequality yeah it's so unfair it's it's absolutely ridiculous to and I feel like all of that money that we pour into private education, I mean, oh my God, it would do, I mean, do wonders for the rest of the school system. Yeah. And, and I just feel like it's absolutely ridiculous, but I feel like if we, I don't know if we could abolish it. I mean, mm. and also we it's are so big, built into the class system in the UK, I think. I think and that's it's so an much issue. part of British history, isn't it? There's so much yeah. history that goes along with also, some of the most prestigious a, private right, schools. America doesn't have a monarchy or like princes and dukes and like this aristocracy mm. and the class system, like I said, mm. in the UK that we have. And private education is very much a part of that. Yep. It's very much this elitist, only if certain few can access this network. Mm. Um, and I think in countries like America or Australia or in Scandinavia where you don't have that mm, I think it's to the same extent yeah and what Dolly highlights very well uh, when she's writing about it is that um, it's this network that it gives you yes and that's what people are after because if you think about it what's the goal of a private school really I mean the goal of a private school is so that you get the most I don't know, quote unquote, well-rounded individual with lots of different interests. They're going to go to the best universities, good grades, and get the best jobs. How do we get the best jobs? Oh, because we have a contact here and a contact here. You can do work experience here. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, you can really develop, you know, your skill in cricket here. And, you know, you can make this team and that will help you go here and it will add to your... And she talks about that really well in the piece. And I think that it was misunderstood by lots of people who read it, especially because mm. she talks about this in a Taker Wagba's podcast, In Good Company, which I'd really recommend that anyone listen mm, to. Me too, it's great. Because, and Dolly says this herself, because the Sunday Times is behind a paywall, it can be screenshotted and totally taken out of context and then that can go onto Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and then people mm. haven't read the entire thing. And I think also because it's a short column, she couldn't fully dive into different elements of it. And I think what she also talks about is that her editors would push pushed back in this case against what she was trying to say, much of which was inspired by um, the book Britain's Private School Problem mm. by David um, Kiniston and Francis Green, mm. which I'd be really interested to read, actually. But it's mm. a lot about that network, that confidence from being in the debating society. It is. That is, that is yeah. what gives those, those kids the core confidence. So when you have companies like DebateMate who are going into schools... Uh, debating is access accessible to everyone yeah that is a massive part of breaking down that absolutely that absolutely Um, i think what dolly did well in that article is that she highlighted specific incidents where she Mm. thought my private education got me this so Mm. she said that an editor saw that they'd been to the same school and therefore Mm. and then she got her first column at 22 if i said to you um what comes to your mind when you when i say private school to you privilege privilege ambition but sometimes not driven by the individual driven by the parents right right and why is that bad 
Because I think sometimes it's unrealistic expectations mm. and you feel that there are certain channels that are acceptable and certain ones that are not. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really interesting to think about private school is actually so many kids are so unhappy. and They just have all this money thrown behind their education and literally their parents so much pressure don't even care they just want their child to do a certain thing or Mm. be a certain thing and also like not knowing the doors that have been opened for us because of that because they've been opened and we don't and you don't even realize you just walk through yeah to do a private school i think that's what what dolly was trying to unpick that she feels Maybe that she feels guilt about where she's got to because of those doors that have been opened in the same mm-hmm. way that they've been opened for us. Mm-hmm. And being... And, I mean, one line that she has in it is that she's... it's Her private education is something that she is the most grateful for but the least proud of. Yeah. And I think that sums it up. Totally. The third figure that we are going to talk about today is the image of Sir Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile record uh, in 1954. And the reason that we're talking about this is firstly because it has been just over a year since he passed away aged 88, and also because he is somebody that I very luckily met, um, because my grandfather, Norris McQuerta, was a good friend of his and was the person who made the announcement on the day that the record was broken. What does that mean, made the announcement? So he was a commentator for the BBC and he was also an amateur athlete himself. And I'll actually read out the exact announcement because this was written in his um, the book that he wrote about his twin, Ross. And I always hear my mum recite this story, but I just thought I'd take it from his words. So the exact words which conveyed the information were, ladies and gentlemen, Here is the result of event number nine, the one mile. First, number 41, R.G. Bannister, Amateur Athletic Association and formerly of Exeter and Merton Colleges, with a time which is a new meeting and track record and which, subject to ratification, will be a new English native, British national, British all-comers, European, British empire and world record, the time three minutes, and lost in the roar of the crowd were the words 59.4 seconds. He had practiced this in the bath the night before because he wanted this crescendo effect where he would build up all the records that he had mm. broken. And, and just to give some context of this as well, because I think it's really interesting. At the time, morale was quite low in Britain. It was after the war, it was a bit of a slump. We'd had the coronation in 1953, which had sort of lifted people's spirits a bit. The first man had climbed Everest, which was also a great achievement. Mm. But I think that people were starting to think that this four-minute mile and breaking that was an impossibility and that humans weren't able to do it. But there were several people around the world, including John Landy and Wesley Santi, who were very close to doing it. And it was this kind of America, Australia, Great Britain race of who Mm. could do it first. And I think more than anything, it was a mental block And I think because Roger Bannister, he was a medical student, he went on to be a very uh, successful physician, he knew that that was ridiculous and that it wasn't a physical thing. It was much... Equally, I've read an article in the New York Times that actually he wouldn't have have had access to the sort of research and science that we would have had now. Mm. And that actually it was more his 
forward thinking and determination. Yes. Trying to do it rather than the actual scientific medical understanding. I mean, bearing in mind, so 1954 is the year my dad was born. <laughs> oh, really? Sorry, Adam. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was the year that DN- the image, first image of DNA was published uh, oh, by wow. Rosalind Franklin um, and Watson and Crick. So it was actually very early still in what we understood about the mm. human body. But I think it was sort of his determination and they yes. say in the article that he was on placement well they call it placement now uh, in modern medical school but at the time it was just sort of a, like, you know a day's work as a medical student at Mary's Hospital in London yeah so he took a half day went up to Oxford had lunch with some of his old friends and then just casually broke the <laughs> <laughs> well I love I love actually a reading mile more later in the afternoon yeah I love reading more about the day itself because he he deliberately went on his own to the on the train to Oxford so he could kind of have a bit of peace of mind. And then he went back to Pembroke College where he was later master. He was walking around the grounds and could see how windy it was from the trees. And they actually only decided to go for it and try and break the record just minutes before the race was due to start. During the race, he had his pacemakers, Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher. What slow. does that mean, a pacemaker? So you've got a certain number of laps that you do when yeah. you're doing the mile. Yeah. In order to run it, you've obviously got to do your one minute per mile. So you've got to be at the right pace because you don't want to overdo it because then you'll be too tired and you won't be able to manage it. So the pacemakers essentially, they set off kind of at a good pace and then your first pacemaker will be so tired that they'll drop back. And then your second pacemaker comes through and they keep you on time the idea of a pacemaker is really interesting to me because it is you know again and they and it was that, that's what i love it was a, as much the three of them right as it was him breaking right. this so oftentimes you know you see usain bolt or you've seen laura trot and it's but actually they have teams it's the team yeah them. sure but so this um friend of his france he shouted relax at the perfect moment while he was going around the track and it is so much a mental achievement that he could push mm. himself through. And I think it was very circumstantial as well because he had, I think, received fourth place in the Olympics. And he said in his Desert Island Disc, I would really recommend listening to, that had he won that and been more successful at the Olympics, he may have ended up giving up athletics and then he may no, never have done this. Oh, interesting. And what's also interesting in terms of the mental block is that after he did it, it wasn't very long afterwards that John Landy in Australia broke it. So it was mm. kind of this, oh, well, once somebody's done it, I can do this as well. Definitely. And then they had this great showdown at another race. Oh, and, Roger Bannister and, and John, John Landy. Landy. And Roger beat him. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God, he's such an achiever. I know, and there's a bronze sculpture of the two of them. And so as Roger Bannister was coming past John Landy, he looked over the wrong shoulder. And so Roger is coming back and he can't see that he's just about to beat him. Wow. I know. But I also wanted to read out this section from Mm. uh, Roger's book, which is called The First Four Minutes. Failure is as exciting to watch as success, provided the effort is absolutely genuine and complete. But the spectators fail to understand, and how can they know, the mental agony through which an athlete must pass before he can give his maximum effort, and how rarely, if he is built as I am, he can give it. So, yeah, that's what I think. It's just all about this mental achievement. And I wish I'd been able to spend a bit more time with him actually and and meet him and I asked his um 
I've, I've spent a lot of time with his grandchildren as well. We've kind of got this three generations where we've all known each other, which I really love. And I think he was always very modest. He didn't really talk about himself very often. He was far more interested in everybody else. So when you met him, it was like an interview and he wanted to know everything about you. I've definitely been interviewed in a very balanced way before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think this, this idea of it being very much a mental game is very true. I have two of uh, my best friends who... One is going to be running the London Marathon. One uh, just recently ran a half marathon. Neither of them, have, I would think, identifies very sporty. Neither of them were really interested in sports at school. But they both say it is such a mental game. Mm. And that actually, once they push through mentally, the physical body, they're astounded by what it can handle. Mm. Um, and that the first 20 minutes is always the worst. And then actually they find that, oh my gosh, I keep running and keep running and keep running and keep running. Um, and I think that's so interesting in terms of any kind of athleticism. Well, I think, well, I think the image just shows that. I mean, it just shows what, what humans can achieve. Mm. I think it's not just him, it's, it's everyone actually. Yeah. And that's why it's so inspiring. It but is. It does take certain individuals to sort of it is. run towards it. No and I think that context of the sort of morale being low is mm. really important to this because it lifted everyone. It was just wow this mm. look at what totally. humans can achieve this totally. is extraordinary totally. and inspired so many people to to break their own mm. kind of boundaries and absolutely i mean i'm running on one of the reasons i'm doing a half marathon is because of these two friends who who are, have just been so brilliant and i thought oh gosh mm. if they can do it yeah i should do it yeah i can do it with this image just going back to it we very much focused on roger ballister's achievements as a an athlete mm. but he went on to do so much as a doctor as well i mean mm. that is such it's one element of a great life i think and i also love that my grandpa is in that image i know me too he's in a white cable jumper thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the figure podcast as usual please leave us a comment or write to us. You can contact us at thefigurepodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at figurepodcast. We always love to hear your opinions um, and any time that you rate or review us, it gives us a boost in the charts and lets other people know how to find us and where to find us and we absolutely love being back being back so we'd really appreciate and if you have any figures that you would like us to talk about please let us know we'd love to hear from you definitely until next week bye bye